I'm Chris, and this is my Writing Table Podcast, where we talk to authors and other creatives about the writing world and what it takes to create the books that we love to read. Ready? Pull up a chair, and let's begin. Philippa Gregory is one of the world's foremost historical novelists. She wrote her first ever novel, Whiteacre, when she was completing her PhD in 18th century literature, and it sold worldwide, heralding a new era for historical fiction. Her flair for blending history and imagination developed into a signature style, and she went on to write many best-selling novels, including The Other Boleyn Girl and The White Queen. Now a recognized authority on women's history, Philippa graduated from the University of Sussex and received a PhD from the University of Edinburgh, where she is a regent and was made alumna of the year in 2009. She holds honorary degrees from Teesside University and the University of Sussex. She is a fellow of the Universities of Sussex and Cardiff and an honorary research fellow at Burnbeck University of London. Philippa is a member of the Society of Authors and in 2016 was presented with the Outstanding Contribution to Historical Fiction Award by the Historical Writers Association. In 2018, she was awarded an honorary platinum award by Nielsen for achieving significant lifetime sales across her entire book output. Welcome, Philippa. Hello, lovely to be with you. Well, it's very lovely to meet you. You have a storied career in historical fiction. Let's back up a few years before you became a writer. Were there movies or books that fanned those flames? No, interestingly enough, I didn't want to write historical (laughs) as a child at all. What really inspired me to historical fiction was I did a BA in history at the University of Sussex after I'd been a journalist. So I had firstly a training in writing and then I went to Sussex University. I fell in love with history at Sussex University and I realised I wanted to spend the rest of my life studying. I went to the University of Edinburgh and did a PhD in 18th century novels worldview. And that Mm -hmm. led me to think a lot about the notion of how people see the world through novels and what they want to avoid seeing. But it also meant that I had to read literally over four years, 200 18th century novels in great detail. And these are big books. They're not short, they're big three-deckers. And at the end of that, without intending to, I had learned a great deal about the 18th century world and the 18th century view of the world. And I literally studied how novels are put together at the time that they were actually being invented, which was the 18th century. And so I wrote my first novel completely for the pleasure of doing it, just sort of in my breaks. And um, to my surprise, it was picked up by a publisher and sold worldwide, and it became a global bestseller. You took the advice of write the book that you want to read, yes. and it paid off. What can you tell us about Dawn Lands? Well, it's set in 1685, which is at a time of a rebellion, which isn't very well known, even in England, which is where the Duke of Monmouth, who is the illegitimate son of Charles II, rises up in rebellion against his uncle, the brother of Charles II, who's just got the throne, James II, and his wife, Mary of Medina. And the royal couple want to turn England back into Roman Catholics. They want the whole country to be obedient to the Church of Rome. And the Duke of Monmouth stands against this and raises a citizen's army. And at the opening of my novel, Dawnlands, 
the hero, the old Cromwellian parliamentary soldier called Ned, comes back to England to join the rebellion. And at the same time, the other wing of the family, Livia, who is this manipulative, seductive, incredibly ambitious woman, has managed to wangle her way into the royal court. So you've got one part of the family in the royal court of Mary of Medina and the other part of the family with the rebellion of the Duke of Monmouth. My best friend, since I was a little girl, you've gone along with us on vacations. One of the things she said was you give a voice to women during a period of time. There wasn't always a voice for those women. You let us see what it's like in their world. Is that something that just happened organically or did you set out to do that? That's really interesting. I think it's a bit of both. I think I came across the character of Mary Boleyn, who Mm -hmm. is the sister to Anne Boleyn in The Other Boleyn Girl. And of course, we have amazingly, we have one letter from her. So it's terribly unusual to have a Tudor woman's letter at all. We have one letter from Mary Boleyn and in it, she's defending a marriage for love. So there's just layers of extraordinary material there. But when I started writing her, there was very, very little known about her. She had no biography in her name. And actually, there's very little known about Anne Boleyn's early life also. As you say, this is a period where women's history is not recorded. So I started off really with those two, wanting to bring them to life. So that led me to thinking about what Tudor women in general did. So the usual research you do, which is like, I can't find out about this individual, but I know that their class or their county or their geography or their wealth, the women of those sorts do this. So it's a safe bet they're doing that. And that's when research overlaps a little bit with fiction anyway you're speculating mm-hmm. about what they might be doing and then it goes into because it's historical fiction it may it goes into full fiction so you go like and there is no record of this scene but I am certain that it happened and I'm therefore going to describe it as if it really did happen and I think after I'd finished that novel I realized that what I had done was something of really very great interest to me which was uh trying to get inside the head of a Tudor woman. And there's so many obstacles to the modern mind doing that at all. Um, and for even for a modern woman, there's a lot of obstacles to it. But it was so illuminating to look at the story of Henry VIII from the point of view of a wife and a mistress, as opposed to the usual way of looking at it, which is how does it, you know, what was it like for Henry? And that just seemed to me just a really rich way of approaching writing historical fiction. And now I'm going on to write a history of English women, a big nine century history, uh, which in a sense is the fulfillment of all of these stories. Oh, wow. Well, when you start these novels, are you conducting, I mean, I know just from your reading about you, you have just such a vast knowledge of history, just as a given, just from your previous works, but do you continue to do the research on the character that you're writing at the time while you're writing, or is it something that you kind of front load and do a lot of research then write? How does that work? There's a kind of continuous process. So at the very beginning, I study uh, the period in particular. And when I feel I'm really confident in it, and as you say, each book informs the next book. So when I'm really confident that I know what's going on, then I 
write the novel. And then I find also that in the course of writing it, things come up. So there will be things I don't know. There might be something like, I don't know what crops people are growing in the field then, or I don't know what the gardens look like. I think with Mary of Medina, I couldn't imagine what they wore to walk out. Because when you see portraits of these Stuart women, they're all off the shoulder silk gowns with ropes and ropes of pearls and beautiful lovelock hair. And I went like, what on earth are they wearing when they go out on a horse, for instance? And to my joy, they're wearing really nicely tailored little velvet jackets. So, you know, things like that. I'm not born knowing any more than anyone else's. So there's a period of like quite detailed research, which goes on right the way through the writing of the book. And in this particular book, Dawnlands, there's quite a lot about the Pocanocot people of the eastern seaboard of the United States. And that I had to embark on an entirely new area of research to understand what their lives were like before the coming of the colonialists and what their lives were like after the first colonial war. And also with them, I got in touch with them directly and met with the tribal elders and spoke to them to make sure that they were happy that I researched and studied their story. And they were very, very generous with their time and telling me about their people. Because they're an oral history, still an oral history nation, you have to meet and you have to talk. It's not in the books. Fascinating. Do you have a favorite author of historical fiction? When I was a child, I used to read Georgette Hare. And I have to say, every time I've come back to her books, I realize how enchanting they are. They're much more complicated than you would think. They're not simple romances. There's a lot going on in them. She's a very, very talented writer. I wouldn't want to write like her. I don't try and write like her because she's very much more class conscious than I am. She's more Mm -hmm. of a smart than I am. She's more (laughs) of a royalist than I am, but she's a great writer. You brought up being a royalist. And what do you think is it that makes us all so fascinated with the royals? I think it goes back to the fact that we know from history and in the historical past that they made this connection with divinity. So, for instance, someone like Henry VIII genuinely believed that there was a great chain of being and it started with God and then it went down through saints and angels and then a king and then lords and then lower lords, and then right the way down to women, you know, very, very <laughs> often. And I think the idea that someone is closer to God, is practically a living God, is of unending fascination. And you see it even in the coronation service, we will see it in the coronation, when there is the anointing with holy oil, which only happens to kings. It's supposed to be God is actually appointing this person as king. So there's that sort of ancient medieval magical awe, I think, around Mm. that. And then on top of that, of course, you know, they are immensely rich and immensely glamorous. And, you know, you see them at their very, very best. So, of course, you want to know what they're like off duty. And, of course, you want to see them in the beautiful gowns and the beautiful dams. It's just celebrity only more so. Out of all of the royals that you've written about, who would you say is the most entertaining? Entertaining is really an interesting word to apply to them. I would think Edward IV is pretty entertaining, the husband of Elizabeth Woodville, because when he's getting to the throne, he has to fight, I think, altogether 
three wars to get to it. He fights to get to the throne. He fights with his father and they're defeated. He fights to get to the throne. He wins it. He gets thrown off it. He fights to get back to it again. You know, he's a bit of a trier and also immensely brave. And it happens immensely handsome. And when he's actually on the throne, he lives his best life. He really does. He says he has three mistresses. One of them's very pretty. One of them's very merry. And one of them's very holy. <laughs> and that's as well as the most gorgeous Queen England has probably ever had. So in terms of entertaining, I mean, both in warfare and in peace, he's a very entertaining monarch. Back to this research, have you ever stumbled upon something maybe you weren't looking for that really surprised you? Yes, it actually comes in the novel Dawnlands. When I was writing, I went to the site of the Battle of Sedgemoor, which is where Monmouth's last stand, where the Monmouth Rebellion is completely defeated. What people of the West Country to this day have tremendous resentment about the treatment of the Monmouth soldiers who were expelled, transported as convicts to the Sugar Islands, and a huge number of them were hanged and tortured. It was a very, very, very uh, bloodthirsty revenge by James II on his people. And while I was talking to the people at the museum, they told me that the parish magazine from this tiny, tiny little village in Somerset, Western Zoyland, they send copies of it out to Barbados to people who are living there still, who count themselves as part of the parish. Interesting. Just extraordinary. I mean, three wow. centuries and they still have a sense of their roots in England. That is surprising. Yeah. And so that was really inspiring for me. So that one of my characters who is arrested after the battle and is sentenced and transported to Barbados, that in a sense opened up a whole new geographic location for me and a whole new strand of the story, which was how are they going to get themselves back from Barbados into freedom? Did that take you to Barbados yes, in person? Yes. Awesome. Yes, <laughs> Well, I mean, what a lovely excuse, but also I, exactly. I, I'm completely transforming to go to a place that I'm going to write about. And on Barbados, I was in a uh, one of the national conservation areas, a nature reserve, and I was walking off the path looking around at things. And I found the entrance to a cave. And beside the entrance of the cave was a tiny little notice, which said this was where transported prisoners hid out when they were escaping from servitude. And I went, this is where they would come. They've got to get free. Get little bumps on your arms when it happens. <laughs> it's surprising how often I'm looking for something and I didn't know that it existed. And then I find it. It's really rather wonderful. It's so cool what you do. Cool is just such an incompetent word for me to use. But, you know, you take these events that were so important to history and you make them make sense to people that maybe would never have known about them or would never have really understood the true ramifications. And when all is said and done, what is the impact you want to make on your readers by writing these novels? I think to answer the feel question, which is, I think what I want them to feel is what I feel, which is the sort of the huge poignancy of lives lived literally at full throttle to the full, which sometimes were victorious and sometimes were defeated, but in any case are now gone. And there's something so wonderful about stepping in your imagination into those lives and reanimating them. I mean, I, I do say a great novel or a great history defeats death. 
And you can't ask for more than that. I think it's important to say that not everybody could write these stories and pull them off the way you have. And you're welcome. But it's also looking at the work you've done before writing and during writing. It's not like, oh, you got lucky. Yes, you have a gift for writing, but also you're doing the work. I think the historical past is very live for me. By the time I come to do the creative writing part of my job, the historical past is very, very live for me. I care very much about the people. I'm very much on one side or another in the battle. It's a very passionate experience for me. And I think the function of the writing is to transmit that emotion. I think that's what we want in novels that we don't need to have in history is the sense that it matters. It's not just that it happened, it's that it really matters that it happened. And it matters how it broke down to real people, you know, not just the royals, but those that surrounded them and who were affected by their decisions, which I think is so meaningful. And you do a beautiful job of that. It's like, I write women's fiction. I mean, I can put out one or two decent manuscripts in a year, one and a half, maybe. How long does it take you? Like, how long did it take you to do Dawnlands? About 18 months. Okay. But that's because the research is so much done from previous books. So if I was to if I was to research a period that I didn't know much about at all, say I was to research for a book set in the period of the late 19th century, which I'm not very familiar with at all, I think that would take between two and three years probably because there's so much reading to do. But because I have the advantage of all of the reading I've done on the Tudors, all of the reading I've done on the Stuarts, in a sense, I'm working in an area which is very familiar. Just looking at all the books that you've published and looking at the time that you're telling me it takes, you don't look old enough to have been <laughs> as prolific and, and for each of these books to have taken that long. You're doing something right. You're very kind. I had a very vain mother-in-law once now, <laughs> And she used to say to everybody, this is my son. I was a child bride. So, you know, I want you to know that I started writing my novels when I was about mm, nine. And Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, I'm uh, 68 and I've been writing since I was 28. So that's 40 years of writing. Um, well, you're beautiful. Oh, well, thank you. On paper you. and off. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. You're very kind. Do you have time to read? Not read for work. A book comes out and you think, oh, that looks good. Do you get to do that? You know, I was thinking about it today and I was thinking that it is ridiculous that I love reading so much, but almost all my reading now is research. I haven't read for kickback pleasure since probably about a year. I got COVID and then I had long COVID for a while. And one of the things I allowed myself to do (laughs) to cheer myself up uh, was read, you know, fiction, just fiction for pleasure. And so it's been about a year and a half since I read just for the pleasure of it. Readers are grateful for the sacrifice you make. Well, you know, it's not a sacrifice because what I'm reading instead is absolutely riveting history. So I'm really enjoying reading history, but I'm also looking forward to when I get the next book out the way, which is going to be nonfiction. It's going to be a history book of English women. When that goes to press, I'm going to literally take to the sofa and read novels for a good few months. When can we expect to have that one out? I'm hoping, I'm touching wood, you can't see, but I am touching (laughs) wood. I'm hoping it's going to be out this time next year. I've been working on it for seven years, so it's a really big project. I bet. What does your writing day look like? 
It used to be determined by the fact that when I was writing, I had school-aged children. So I used to start when they were out the door and stop when they came in. And now, you know, in my years of freedom, absurdly, I've got myself a very well-loved dog. And so literally, I write around her convenience. So I do a couple of hours in the morning, and then I take her for a walk. And then I do another couple of hours. And then it's pretty well early afternoon. And then in the evening, I might reread and edit, or I might read history, or I might take the evening off. I'm at my desk with my nose up against the screen for about between four to six hours a day. And do you literally sit at a desk? No. I mean, the glory of the laptop is I used to sit at a desk. And, you know, when I first started, I, you know, we agreed I'm, it was extraordinary long time ago. I used to type on a manual typewriter. It's so long ago. The first book was manually typed. Uh, now I have a laptop and sometimes I'm in bed early in the morning or late at night. Sometimes I'm in my office sitting up and that's useful because I've got my library around me. So I've got all the books, my reference books to hand. And sometimes I'm on the sofa in front of the fire with the dog just matters nice well tell us about the dog yeah she is a red setter an irish oh, red cool yes irish setter very, very beautiful dog and her name is butter and she is two <sighs> years old this month and she is oh. adorable she's just getting out of the stage of being quite infuriating and she's she's a red setter so she's getting to the stage of being just a little infuriating but she's <laughs> a very affectionate dog and we're oh, very they're so sweet My husband had one named Pat and growing up long before I met my husband, I had one named Kelly. They're such beautiful dogs and red setter. Yes. Yes. Way back in the day, she needed a lot of exercise. (laughs) Well, yes, that's, that's one of the things that interrupts the work. She likes a lot of attention. She likes a lot of play, but you know, as she's getting older, she understands more and more that every day she's supposed to lie under the desk and help me work. And she's just (laughs) starting to get the hang of that. Do you have any advice for new writers? I mean, only the really boring advice, which is that (laughs) don't read something that you don't think is very good and think I could do better than that and aim that low. Read something that you think is absolutely fantastic and that you will never be as good as that and try and write like that. Because then at least if you don't get published or you don't succeed, you've tried to do something that was really excellent as opposed to trying to cross your imaginary low bar. And the other thing is, is it really read, read before you write so that you get a really good sense of how novels are put together and what works and what doesn't. And so you find your own narrative voice, which you can only do by listening to a lot of other people's narrative voices. And then good luck. When you talk about these narrative voices, you have so many of these people and their voice would be inspired by their experience. And it's not an experience you necessarily come up with. So what is your strategy when you're writing? I think there's two things. One is that Philippa Gregory, the writer, has now an established narrational voice. So I opened a book the other day. It was on an e-reader. So I didn't see the jacket and I read it and I went like, (laughs) who's that? And it was me. And (laughs) the reason I had one of my own books open on, uh, as I was checking up on something, and I recognized my own narrational voice with a bit of a jolt of discomfort because it felt sort of weird. And then I went, oh, yes, that's me. That's okay. That's what I sound like. First of all, before you do anything else, before you try and write in anyone else's voice, you have to find the own rhythm of your written speech, which is not the same as your 
spoken speech. And it's not the same as your ordinary writing. It's something a little bit enchanted. And you just mm-hmm. have to write a lot until you find your voice. I really believe that. And then once you've got that, you can then, in a sense, ventriloquize the past. But you've got to get your own voice before you can start trying to speak for someone else. It is an honor to have been able to meet you and talk to you about Dawnlands and about writing. And I just want to thank you for giving us this time. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. To learn more, visit philippagregory.com. If you're enjoying The Writing Table, please consider leaving us a review. There are so many podcasts out there. Reviews help other listeners find us. Thanks so much for your support.